They're going to kill me, Jesus told them. It was his third great prediction of how it was all going to end. We are going to Jerusalem where they will condemn me to death. They will mock me, whip me, slay me like an animal on a pike. And it's at this moment that James and John and their mom pick to approach him with a question that's so out of touch, they don't just come across as clueless, they come across as callous. But just think, just as he did with Martha and Mary last week, Jesus tried to prevent their cluelessness and ours with a special dinner. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Today we cover two stories, a dinner conversation recounted by Luke, and a special request on the road told by Mark and Matthew. It's astonishing to see how clueless the apostles are, and heartening to see how patient Jesus is with clueless people. For I too am clueless. I want to start with Jesus' advice about where to sit at the table in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler who belonged to the Pharisees, they were watching him. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he marked how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a marriage feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest a more eminent man than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give place to this man." and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your kinsmen or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So this is a story from earlier on in The Extraordinary Story. In the instance we've been covering of late, Jesus is nearing his final descent into Jerusalem, where, as promised, he will be handed over and will suffer. But before he goes there, we are tying up some loose ends. One major incident that pushed him towards suffering and death was the raising of Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary. So we set that incident in the context of a dinner he had with Martha and Mary earlier. We talked about how the lessons they learned at the dinner had to be applied to the raising of Lazarus. That was last week. Well, this week, as Jesus is headed resolutely toward Jerusalem, we have the story of James and John and their mom kind of embarrassing themselves. But before we get there, I wanted to start out by showing how at another dinner earlier in the story, Jesus had given them the information they need to avoid this embarrassment. And that's this first story from Luke that we just read. It's called the Lucan Symposium. 
in old commentaries, because this was a dinner party at which Jesus said important things. It begins by saying Jesus entered the home of a leading Pharisee, and they were watching him. This is interesting on a number of levels. It shows the fascination with Jesus, the suspicion of Jesus, and the begrudging admiration of Jesus. And insofar as it says that about Jesus, it says that about all of us Christians. People are aware of who we are and what we claim, and they want to see if we live up to it in order to dismiss us. They're watching us. In an increasingly secular culture, people watch us eager to say, see, those Christians aren't anything special. But notice what Jesus does here. He is eating with enemies. He is eating with those who oppose him. He is going right at the problem and showing how willing he is to engage with them. And then notice the advice he gives. It's advice on how to gain honor. Do not recline at table in the place of honor, he says. A more distinguished guest than you may be invited by him and the host who invited both of you may approach you and say, give your place to this man. And then you would proceed with embarrassment to take the lowest place. On the one hand, Jesus is describing a nightmare scenario for a proud person, but his goal isn't really to give proud people advice on preserving their egos. Easing the way of pride is never God's M.O. Instead, Jesus knows that this nightmare scenario is an even more costly disaster for an emissary of Christ who is being watched. If that person is discounted as a fame-seeking fraud, his plans are ruined, and he wants us to prevent that. A proud person will only lose face. The emissary of Christ will lose the credibility he needs to evangelize. Jesus has an answer. Rather, when you are invited, go and take the lowest place, so that when the host comes to you, he may say, My friend, move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at the table. End quote. Well, that enjoying the esteem of the people at table is only a good thing if it serves a good purpose. And what is that good purpose? Jesus explains, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is Jesus saying, The meek shall inherit the earth. For starters, by not getting embarrassed at parties, but then by influencing the party for God. We'll return to this, but keep all this in mind as we turn next to a story that's in Mark and Matthew. I'll use Mark's version because we haven't hung out with Mark for a while. The Request of James and John And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So clearly, James and John should have known better than this. They are essentially saying, give us the highest spot. And as Jesus taught them, the answer to that is always, no, you get the lowest. They sound very childish in the story in the Gospel of Mark. They approach Jesus with a kind of request middle schoolers fantasize about asking a genie in a bottle. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They literally say that. Jesus plays along, though, saying, what would you wish me to do for you? It's funny because it almost sounds like something a high-class person would request of a butler. And Jesus' response is what the butler would say, what do you wish me to do for you? But God doesn't act that way. Well, he does on occasion. Think of Solomon in the Old Testament, who had the opportunity to ask God whatever he wanted. He did the right thing. He asked for wisdom. And God said, great, good answer. Or think of Mother Teresa in our time. She had an experience of intimate conversation with Jesus and had the opportunity to ask him for a grace. She asked for the grace of never refusing him anything. Well, right answer once again. Those are powerful requests of God. James and John's prayer, not so much. They kind of blow their opportunity. They ask, grant that in your glory we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. But Jesus still does not dismiss them out of hand. He points out, you do not know what you are asking and ask if they are willing to be baptized with his baptism and drink from his cup, metaphors for sharing his suffering. Jesus is redefining their desire to share in his glory as a desire to share in his suffering. And that, indeed, is what their request entails. If you want to share in the glory of a warrior, you have to fight by his side. If you want to share in the glory of a politician, you have to campaign by her side. To share Christ's glory, you have to suffer. In Matthew, this story comes right after Jesus' third prediction of the Passion. He has just said, quote, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. End quote. What James and John picture in their minds is a trip to Jerusalem where Jesus will reestablish a throne over the Romans and pick his right and left-hand man from among his apostles. What they don't realize is that his throne will be a cross and that condemned criminals will be at his right and his left. To approach Jesus at this very moment and ask him, hey, can we get honor and power with you, is a failure to read the room of monumental proportions. Matthew points out that James and John are brothers and says that their mother is the one who asked the question. That's not inconsistent with Mark because it's one thing for your mom to ask something embarrassing while you stand in the background and say, Mom, please, don't. It's another thing to send your mom up to ask for a favor that you feel funny about because you're embarrassed to admit that the question is really yours and you are weak enough that you would still rather have your mom stand up for you. That seems to be what happened here. Mom asked the question for them, not despite them. And their simple request of Jesus is, grant that in your glory we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. And like I say, it's a stupid question, revealing a misunderstanding that goes to the very heart of Jesus' message. But it's incredibly revelatory to see how Jesus answers it. Start by imagining the way you or I might answer. I would probably want to look good in front of them and acquiesce to their mom, 
Imagine if Jesus had said that by saying, absolutely, you've got it. If God assigned places of glory based on who got close enough to him to ask for favors at the right time, then he would be a divine version of our worst tendencies. He would be an almighty politician, dispensing favors and denying places based on his personal whims. He would be like a pagan god playing favorites, and gods who have favorites also have least favorites. If this was God, we would have to try to appease him as best we could, always worried that his temper might turn against us despite our best efforts. Our lives would be meaningless if we were out of favor with him, and we would be no better than political cronies if we were in favor with him. But God is not like that. Jesus Christ holds all of us to the same standard. None of us gets an automatic in. Or imagine if Jesus had said what I might say in different circumstances, if I was feeling especially powerful. Imagine he said, well, that's a small-minded, egotistical question. You fools, away with you. That's a terrible thought, actually. What if God disdained absurd questions like James and John's? What if he had no patience for our tendency to self-aggrandizement? Well, he wouldn't listen to a whole lot of my prayers if that were the case. Of course, he has every right to disdain that kind of question. He is the great almighty God, and we are puny nothings. He could thunder from the mountain and allow no one but the accomplished and holy to approach him and only listen to their finest questions, like Oz, the great and powerful. But if he did, how many of us would have a chance at speaking with him? But the James and John story shows that he is not like that either. He doesn't treat us as insignificant disappointments who can safely be ignored. So, how does he answer? He answers like a dad. You don't know what you're asking, he says. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This sounds like the kind of answer a soldier's little boy would get if he asked, Dad, will I get a purple heart and a silver star medal one day just like you? The dad would answer with a heavy heart that, yes, he might one day also have to face the kinds of things that get those medals. And it would make him proud if he did, but it would also make him sad. In fact, it is said that a boy once asked St. John Paul II if he could be Pope one day just like him. It said that John Paul II simply nodded his head and replied, Oh, if you knew what you were asking. Jesus knew how the lives of St. James and St. John would end. So he said, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But he wouldn't promise anything more than that for a life yet unlived. Jesus' explanation should have been a kind of a wake-up call for the apostles. Because the cup that he's talking about and the baptism that he's talking about were foretold in Isaiah, where he speaks of the suffering servant. The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. They're being asked to give their lives as an offering for sin. And in fact, the martyrdom of St. John, by sword under Herod, is the only apostle's martyrdom recorded in the New Testament. He did drink the cup. And along with John, who lived in exile at the end of his life, he did suffer for the people, just like Jesus. The true Christian vocation isn't simply to lead others, but to lead them by serving, by suffering. Those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt, says Jesus. But for Christians, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be a slave of all. Jesus answered this way with more than just words. 
He had just predicted the passion, remember, but they weren't listening. They felt like they were in a position of honor, like they were in business class on an airplane and could ask for an upgrade. But Jesus knew the truth. They were passengers on a plane that had been hijacked, and they had to be freed before they could receive anything. And he would free them only by offering himself in their place. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, he said, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, to answer their question, Jesus first spoke to them, but later he died for them. As the book of Hebrews put it, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. Jesus himself was the high priest who is the very greatest VIP, the second person of the Trinity, who subjected himself to everything we suffer, and more. He gives his life as an offering for sin, says Isaiah, and through his suffering, my servant shall justify many, and their guilt he shall bear. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For Jesus, this ransom of us is a key concept. Mark quotes Jesus saying he was a ransom for many. Paul tells Timothy Jesus was a ransom for all. The Ephesians find out that this redemption came through his blood. In the 21st century, we think of ransom as giving money to a kidnapper, but for the Jewish people, it meant freeing a slave through blood. God called Israel his firstborn son, and their freedom from Egyptian slavery cost the blood of Pharaoh's firstborn sons and a lamb in the place of sons for the Israelites. God's action is echoed in Leviticus, where the law describes how only a family member can ransom a family member who was enslaved by a foreigner. And so now he redeems us from a house of bondage, just as he did in Egypt. Only now it's the devil who holds us, and baptism and the Eucharist make us his family, bought with a price, paid in the blood of his own firstborn son. But God is far more powerful than Satan. Why does he have to ransom himself? Why doesn't he just take back what's his by force? Well, because God is love, and love never forces itself. God never overpowers us or makes us love him. He always woos and wins us instead. And we will win over people in our time only by wooing and winning them also. They will only follow if we suffer. And here's where Jesus' advice at that dinner and Jesus' answer to James and John come together. At the dinner, he told them to take the lowest place. Now he's telling them again in different circumstances the same message. In the end, Jesus won't honor people based on who happened to catch him at a good moment and ask. He will honor those in whose lives he recognizes his own. There's an easy way to tell whether or not the church is following the way of servant leadership and suffering that Jesus describes here. Where Christian leadership means serving and suffering, numbers are growing. Where Christian leadership means self-seeking, they aren't. And I happen to be recording this podcast in the United States where our numbers are falling fast. When James and John asked to sit at his right and left, I use the example of a soldier's son asking about medals or a boy asking about becoming Pope. But to understand Jesus' line about serving instead of being served, think of the question as being from a farmer's son. To get a sense of what the gospel is talking about, imagine a child asking his parents if he can take over the farm. 
The child thinks this is simply a matter of being declared the boss. The child may think being in charge will be a way to escape certain chores. The parents know that being in charge of a farm entails a lifetime of early hours in the cold, late nights of worry, and every variety of pain, physical and emotional. They know that on a farm, the boss isn't a pampered ruler, but a virtual slave, not just to the needs of every family member, but to the needs of every horse, cow, and pig. Quotes, to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared, said Jesus, which is another way of saying, I can't give you this. You can only get it through blood, sweat, and tears. In our day, as in many dark times in the church's history, priests and bishops in the West have often seemed to act like princes and bosses rather than like servants. This is obvious in the sex abuse crisis, but it shows up in the attitudes that persist among many pastors who live in relative luxury and consider the church their fiefdom. When bishops and priests lord it over their flock and make their authority over them felt, scores of people choose none when asked what their religion is. In the suffering church, in places where to be Christian is to be persecuted, the church in Afghanistan, China, Iran, and Uganda, for instance, bishops and priests often live in poverty and lead by suffering, and the church is growing by leaps and bounds. These are people who drink the cup he drank and are baptized by the baptism he received. James and John said they were willing to drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. We can, they said. You will, Jesus answered. And then they did. Like I said, John was exiled on an island. James was killed by the sword. But as it turns out, the father seems to have given them excellent placement, sort of, kind of, on the left and right of Jesus. They've both shared in Christ's glory. Both John and James are immortalized in books of the Bible. As an evangelist, John's image is carved, painted, or inscribed in glass in many churches. And if you Google St. James, you'll find the many, many places named for the saint, from Spain to Scotland to the Virgin Islands. They drank the cup and they got the glory. But we also receive Jesus' baptism and drink his cup. We're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, and we partake in his body and blood offered for us on the cross and at Mass. Catholics who are in the know understand that Jesus is truly present in his sacraments. We really become members of his body in baptism, and we truly receive him in the Eucharist. But we probably imagine that the dying and suffering part of the sacraments are symbolic, that he did that part so we don't have to. We think baptism in the Eucharist will just be a matter of a respectable life, serious but comfortable. But many Christians in the world know the truth. Baptism into Christ's death often means that you too will die, and communion with his blood means spilling your own blood too. The 20th century saw more martyrdoms than all the previous centuries combined, and the 21st century is on pace to set a grim new record. For us in the West, as Christianity grows more and more countercultural, the sacraments will grow increasingly costly, too. We who practice and love our Catholic faith make a critical error when we think that makes us betters of other people. We are a little like John and James. Jesus had a special nickname for them. He called them the Sons of Thunder because they were committed and intense. He picked them out for all kinds of special favors. They got to see Jairus' daughter raised and witness the transfiguration. But they got the wrong impression. They thought all the special treatment was receiving something that they were owed. We treat Jesus in exactly this way. 
Like them, we feel with good reason that we have a special relationship with Christ. We Americans live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And not just that, we Catholic Americans have gazed upon the Blessed Sacrament with belief and longing and sacrificed for him while most people ignore him or treat him with contempt. Since we've done this, when we pray, we also expect him to snap to attention and give us what we ask. This subtly but surely changes our mindset so that we become more and more like James and John. The world is in the midst of a repaganizing process and we suffer from it also. We begin to think that the point of our life is to gain more honor, more power, more money, or more pleasure. All those things that people thought would bring them happiness, but only brought darkness before Christianity. When Christianity came, people learned a new way, a way of meekness, a way of humility. That's the way we need to learn. That's the way Jesus is trying to teach us. That's the way Mother Teresa learned. She was supremely happy even while suffering terribly. Humility is one of her chief virtues, and she used to say, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. And she said, humble yourself, or God will do it for you by humiliating you. And Jesus is himself the best example of how powerful humility can be. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world, as I am fond of saying. My old roommate in Oxford, Adrian Walker, awakened me to the importance of a passage that describes God as an all-consuming fire. It's in Hebrews, and the passage goes on to say, You have not approached that which could be touched, and invokes an old story about Moses at the foot of Mount Horeb, where people felt so overawed by God that they could hardly speak. Hebrews remembers it as a blazing fire and a gloomy darkness and a storm and a trumpet blast and a voice speaking words such that those who heard begged that no message be further addressed to them, for they could not bear to hear. No one was allowed to touch the mountain that was so holy. And Hebrews said, Indeed, so fearful was the spectacle that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. That's who God is. And Jesus is God. Jesus is the divine second person of the Trinity. So all of this is a description of him. He is the all-consuming fire who will be terrifying if we saw him for who he truly is. His divine majesty and total otherness puts an infinity of distance between us and him. But Jesus comes nonetheless and dines with Pharisees who disdain him as an inferior. And even then, Jesus takes the least place at the Pharisees' table. So that's Jesus' advice to we Christians who are interacting with the world. He also had some advice that we skipped over, advice to the person who invited him. And it's interesting that every lesson of Jesus seems to end up being, in part, serve the poor. His lesson on humility is no exception. At dinner with the Pharisee, Jesus is being scrutinized, and remember that we too are being watched in whatever we do. Rather than act proud and lose credibility, Jesus says, When you hold a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your wealthy neighbors, in case they may invite you back and you have repayment. Rather, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you. End quote. This is the express opposite of the current practice of fancy fundraising dinners. Jesus is asking that our attention focus on serving those who will never repay us and haven't earned it. Then, and only then, will people respect us and through us our Lord. And there's one way I think is key to living out what these Gospels are asking. 
I have found out that whenever I have a really good idea about how to live the Christian life in our time, it turns out several dozen people are already doing it, and doing it way better than I ever will. I noted that last week's episode and this week's episode were both about Jesus teaching people through dinners. He changed Martha and Mary's lives by advice at a dinner, and after the fact, his Lucan Symposium dinner changed lives too. Well, I keep hearing stories about people who have taken this dinner apostolate very seriously. Here in Atchison, we have community dinners reaching out to our neighbors. On Father Mike Schmidt's Catechism in a Year podcast, he spoke recently about a friend who takes Jesus' command to love your neighbor seriously by having dinners for the literal neighbors on his block. Here in Kansas, we have the Holy Family School of Faith, whose mission is leading people to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary. The idea is to invite people over for dinner, conversation, and prayer. My wife and I had an apostolate in Connecticut for years, opening our home on Saturdays in the summer to whoever wanted to come and grill with us. These are all ways to do what Jesus says to do. Don't just eat with your friends. Open it up. Bring in more people. But ultimately, Jesus is the best example of this. This is what he does every Sunday. He invites us to a dinner that outclasses us by light years. Again, in the book of Hebrews, we hear, You have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and countless angels in festal gathering, and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and God the judge of all, and the spirits of the just made perfect. End quote. When we come to Mass, we clearly belong in the lowest seat. It is only through a miracle that Christ finds an even lower place, and it is only through pure grace that he exalts us to the very heights of reality. And let me just put one last point out there, because we read what Jesus said in John chapter 6, and we will read what he says at the Last Supper. And so we know that Jesus, the almighty and terrifying, all-powerful God, doesn't just take the form of a slave for us, He takes an even lower place at our table at each Mass. He becomes the food. And that same chapter of Hebrews that I've been quoting says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel, end quote. Jesus established the new covenant by being humble and obedient even to the cross and continues the new covenant by making us present at his sacrifice on the Eucharistic table at each Mass. God's voice is so terrifying that the people begged him to be silent. That same voice is the one who says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The God of storm and trumpet blast takes a lower place to lift us up. God, the untouchable one, consents to be received in our very bodies. God, the all-consuming, consents to be consumed by us. And we will see in the coming episodes how serious he is about taking the lowest place as he sets his face like flint and heads to Jerusalem, rushing like water to the lowest place to buoy us up with his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.